on a day where I was no doubt faking illness to stay home from school. I, uh, I did that a couple of times. I turned on AMC, you know, American Movie Classics, right? And I was greeted by the movie The Poseidon Adventure, all right? Now, I'm not talking about the brand new one. I'm talking about the old Poseidon Adventure. Don't know how many of you have seen it, but it had some good stars in it. Got some Gene Hackman in there, some Ernest Borgnine, Marty, anybody, right? Ernest Borgnine, Red Buttons, come on now. It was a good cast, all right? And the whole concept of the Poseidon Adventure is that they're all on this, on this luxury cruise liner, and they're all having dinner one night, and, and a tidal wave comes and flips the ship upside down, all right? Flips the ship upside down. Now, for those of you who never want to go on a cruise, I have just reinforced that notion, but uh, these people were flipped upside down, and those who survived this traumatic experience were all sort of in the dining room together, and they had a choice to make. The choice was to stay with the crew because the crew said, stay put, help will come. But there was somebody who didn't agree with that assessment, and that somebody was this enigmatic, sort of foul-mouthed, somewhat irreverent, may I even say a little creepy, pastor, played by Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman and pastor together is already creepy. So anyhow, so Gene Hackman looks at all the people sitting there in the dining room and says, listen, we're at the top of the boat, which is now the bottom of the boat. We've got to get to the top. And only a handful choose to go with this guy. And I can imagine, well, I probably would have stayed put too. Well, it turns out it was the right way to go because the boat begins to fill up with water. And Gene and his crew are continually ascending levels of the ship, trying to get to the bottom of the ship uh, where they can hopefully make their escape and survive. Now, of the few who take this arduous journey, uh, some do not survive. And constantly throughout this movie, these people are questioning this, this guy, this leader. They, they think his motives are off. They don't know that he really cares about them. They even accuse him of doing things for his own glory. They don't approve of his methods, his motives. They don't like the way he talks to them. But good old Gene gets them to the bottom of the ship, which is, of course, now the top. And for all their wondering about their leader, all their questioning of his motives and his methods, his true colors come out in the last scene, and some of you remember it. They get to the very last part of the ship, and there's a hatch that they need to go through to get to the hull. But the hatch is now suspended in midair, and there's a wheel that turns it, and that wheel is in midair too. And before anybody can make a plan, the enigmatic, foul-mouthed, somewhat creepy pastor leaps off of the catwalk onto the wheel and begins to turn it to open the hatch for these people and then falls to his death. It was a true moment of sacrificial leadership and it grabs the heart of the viewer because in that moment you realize that for all his weird methods, all his weird motives, good old Gene really did care about these people. His methods and motives were always questioned. They're not the choice that the followers would have made, but he did have their best interest at heart. Now, before I go any further, I'm not talking about me and you today. I don't think I'm creepy. Uh, I'm not foul-mouthed, irreverent, and I hope not to be enigmatic. But what I'm trying to convey is that sacrificial leadership proved out that he really had their best uh, intent in mind. Jesus was this type of leader. Jesus wasn't foul-mouthed, but he was constantly questioned. His motives were always being questioned by Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. 
His methods were, uh, were always being questioned, not just by the religious elite, but even by some of his disciples. They're going, Jesus, what are you doing? That's a really bad idea. At times, his language was harsh towards the haughty. Yet he had this amazing sense of compassion for the weak and those who needed him. He was an enigmatic leader, for lack of a better term. He had a subversive agenda. He wasn't always liked, but he was followed. But at the heart of it all for Jesus was this simple phrase. The Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite self-designation in Scripture. Jesus, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. With that phrase, and the way that Jesus backed it up by his life and his death, he gave us a model for leadership that is unsurpassed. Leadership in its truest sense is done by people who act as servants and that will sacrifice for the people that they lead. That's leadership God-style, Jesus-style. That's the heart of leadership expected by the Lord. Not power, not glory, but sacrificial servanthood was modeled by Jesus. And for you today, whatever you presume to lead, whether you lead as part of a church or whether you lead in your business place, whether you lead in your school or your neighborhood or whether you lead in your home, don't presume to be a leader in Jesus' name unless you take on the responsibility of sacrificial and servant-hearted leadership. Today, I want us to look through the words of the Apostle Peter, what God says about the leadership of his church with that model of sacrificial servanthood in mind. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. These were the words of the Apostle Peter, the disciple Peter, Pearly Gates Peter, best friend of Jesus Peter, someone who knew Jesus probably better than anybody else but his mama. This is what he says. Now, as an elder myself... And a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we have what Peter believes, what Peter has been taught by Jesus about leadership of the church. I find it compelling way back in verse 1 that when Jesus thinks about, or when Peter thinks about church leadership, his mind automatically goes where? What's the first thing he says? Now, as elder myself and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. So he's, he's, he's turning the page here in the book of 1 Peter, in this epistle, in this letter that he's written to the churches, and he's talking about church leadership now. He's an elder and he's talking to the other elders, other church leaders. And then the first thing that he thinks about as an elder are the sufferings of Christ. He doesn't think about some leadership model necessarily that Jesus exhibited that would would fit some paradigm or a John Maxwell book. He thinks about the sufferings of Christ. He thinks about 
the way Jesus gave to the people around him, asking nothing in return. When Peter remembers the way Jesus led, what Peter remembers is the sacrificial nature of the way Jesus served the people that he led. That's what he remembers. He remembers the sufferings of Christ. He doesn't say, now as an elder myself, I exhort you to remember the great words that he preached on the Sermon on the Mount. Boy, did he really charge up the people that day. He doesn't even even speak to the ascension or the resurrection of Christ. He speaks to the sufferings of Christ. It's what he remembers. But he doesn't stop there. He thinks of one other thing before he gets to the practicality of leading in the church. As well as one, still in verse 1, who shares in the glory to be revealed. You see, Peter remembered something else about the leadership of Jesus. It wasn't just done as sacrificial service for the sake of sacrificial service. It was done for the eventual glory to be revealed. Now, that's sort of an enigmatic phrase. That's a phrase that if you're just reading your Bible for the first time, you go, the glory to be revealed? What is that? Well, in essence, we're talking about the day of the Lord. We're talking about uh, the last day, the day when God comes and God takes the earth back, when he makes all things new, when all is made right. Just think heaven, when all things are made right. And there's all types of theology and teaching that we could go into about that day, but in essence, just think about the glory to be revealed as that time when Jesus returns and all things are made right. No more sorrow, no more pain. Everything is as it should be from the beginning of time. That, that's, what, that's what this glory to be revealed is all about. And part of that glory to be revealed, and this is what Jesus had on his mind as he's serving people sacrificially, as he goes so far as to give his life up on the cross for human beings. He's not just doing that so people think he's cool, so people think he's awesome, so people would love him. He's doing that because there's a, it's a means to an end. And that end, as we just talked about a few moments ago at the end of our worship time, was that God and man were separated. Humanity, because of their sin, could not come near to God because of his holiness, because of his goodness. So when Jesus comes to earth and, and takes on that sacrificial life and sacrificial death, he pays our penalty and he allows heaven and earth, God and man, to come back together into true relationship. That's the glory to be revealed, and it will be revealed fully when Jesus returns, when God comes and makes all things right. So when, when Peter begins to talk to the church about leadership, two things come to his mind about Jesus. One, Jesus led sacrificially. And two, Jesus led sacrificially because there's a goal, there's an end game, and the end game is that everything's made right and human beings get to be in relationship with God for eternity. By recalling Christ, Peter is insinuating that leadership, that eldership, is not driven by a desire for power or glory. It's driven by two concepts. One, we lead sacrificially, and two, we do so because people need to come to God. People need to be saved because there will be a day when God returns and he's gonna call us into account. And that day is going to be a glorious day for those who know the Lord, for those who know Jesus. And we need to be working and leading and striving against that day. Jesus was working and leading and striving and dying and rising against that day. That people would come to know him, and by him they might have communion with his Father 
in heaven. That's the theology of chapter 5, verse 1. Now, the question that then comes to us is, what is that leadership supposed to look like in the church? Because that's what Peter's really trying to get at here. He gives us this theological flourish to begin chapter 5, but then he goes on to talk about the practicality and how that works out in the church and church leadership. Now, if I were to ask you, what should church governance and leadership look like, I might get a hundred different ideas if I had you put that down on a page. So we're going to take a step back for just a minute this morning into history and sort of get a concept for how church leadership has worked, because we're really greeted in verse 1 by this title, Elder. He says, as an elder myself, and then at the end of verse 1, he says, I exhort the elders among you. So we've got to get our mind wrapped around this concept of elder a little bit and get our mind wrapped around historically what the church was doing in terms of its leadership. The hard part is the story of church governance from the scriptures is a pretty murky one. It's a murky story about church governance, but I'm going to try to lay it out for you. Around 60 AD, and that's when this is written, and the disciples had gone out from Jerusalem and then to Judea and then to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. They were fanning out all over the world and spreading the gospel that Jesus Christ had risen, that he offered salvation, that serving him allowed you to serve in the kingdom of God and would fulfill the purpose for which God created you. And they're sharing this with people all over the world. Well, what they do is they go into a town and nobody's a Christian yet. So they begin to evangelize, and these people were called apostles or evangelists. They'd go in, and they'd begin to share the story of Jesus Christ. Some of them did it by relating how Jesus related to the Old Testament, because there was a version of the Old Testament in most uh, Roman and Greco-Roman towns. So they'd relate the story of Christ, and people would begin to convert to Christianity. That was the role of apostle or evangelist. Go into an uncharted area and begin to convert people in that city or that town. Then these apostles would stay for a time to establish house churches. Think Bible studies almost. But the Bible study would not be just for the married couples or just for the singles or just for that. What they, this for this or just for that, everybody would come together. Everybody, single, married, children, they'd all come together and they'd have church in whoever had the biggest house. That's the way they did it. Well, before the apostle left to go on to the next town, usually he would appoint an elder over a house church. So there's an elder for this house church and there's an elder for that house church and there's an elder for that house church. And the house church probably only holds as many people as the house could hold, right? Now, there's no churches like we know them today, church buildings, because at this time in history, Christianity was a a, a religion that wasn't sanctioned by the Roman Empire. In fact, it wasn't sanctioned by any empire. It was a new sort of concept. And so you didn't go out and build a church. You just met in whose ever home was biggest. So the apostle would appoint an elder or elders to lead these house churches in in his absence, And then eventually what we find, and we learn this through the books of 1 Timothy and the book of Titus, that sometimes the apostle would go back in and he'd set up a pastor to sort of oversee a group of house churches. Think Timothy, think Titus. Paul goes back in, he sends Timothy and Titus to sort of oversee all of these house churches and all of these elders. Because there was no church building, and in essence, you didn't want to broadcast to the authorities, hey, we're the Christians, the ones you don't like, all right? And that was the way things went until about 325 AD. But then the picture gets a little less murky in 325, because in 325 
in essence, or really about 3, 315 A.D. or 325 A.D., depending on what you want to look at it, Christianity sort of becomes the main religion of the Roman Empire. And all of a sudden, these house churches get together and they say, you know what we should do? We should build a church, you know, a building. And it should be beautiful, and all of us can come and worship together. What do you think? And they all said, yeah, we can do that. So they get together and they begin to build these churches. And when they begin to build these churches, the pastors who have now overseen all of these multiple house churches are now called bishops, all right? Someone who's overseeing a group of churches. They become known as bishops. And the house uh, churches built these buildings called churches for worship. And then the elders, the ones who were overseeing these house churches, they get ordained by the bishop and are now called priests. Sound familiar? All right, so you got the seeds of the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox Church. And of course, if you want to take it one step further, the bishop who oversees all the bishops is the archbishop, right? And then you got these two rival guys. You got the Pope in Rome and the Patriarch in Constantinople who both think that they're the real head of everybody, right? And so that's the way things went until about 1500. And then comes the Reformation. For those of you who are bored by the history lesson, it will be over in 90 seconds. The Reformation comes. Protestants, us, we come along. And we say, okay, we got to break this down a little bit. Things have got to be a little different. We believe in the priesthood of all the believers. Everybody's allowed to read the Bible. Everybody's allowed to take communion in both kinds, both the bread and the wine. Everybody's allowed to have a part in the church. We don't just come and sit and listen to the priest. Well, in essence, what ends up sort of happening is Protestants or churches that break away from the Roman Catholic Church, they just form new denominations. And for the most part, they have bishops or overseers. And there's other names for that. But in essence, there's still leaders who oversee groups of churches. But the priests then become pastors. So have you seen sort of the progression? The elder becomes the priest but is now the pastor. Okay? And then what happens is they get back into the scriptures because they're Protestants and read their Bibles and, and they're excited that they have the Bible in their own language now and they see, well, what's, if we have pastors, what's the role of the elders that we see from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 5? And so what these individual churches do is they begin to appoint elders to assist in pastoral care and to help keep the pastors and churches accountable. So in essence, you can think of modern-day elders as sort of being over all the little house churches that exist in a congregation like ours of 250. So let's say there's a congregation like ours of 250, and you break us into 10 house churches. We'd need 10 elders. Well, we only got five, but I guess six with me. But in essence, you sort of have people who recognize that all the pastoral care, all the governance of the church should never be done just by one person. It should be done by a group of people who all submit themselves to Christ. Now, the thing here at VLC is, is simple. We don't have a bishop. We don't have one. We don't have anybody that's over our church besides Jesus, right? We don't have a, we don't have a, 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 a mortal person being our bishop. We have a pastor. We have elders. Then we have trustees who handle the financial matters of the church. And in essence, our goal is to work in this symbiotic relationship where we're all submitting ourselves to Christ and submitting ourselves to one another and humbly accepting words from one another about how the church should be led. And that's the model that we have today. That's the model that we have to think about when we read 1 Peter chapter 5. Pretty circuitous route to get there, right? Because if you just read it like that, you, you just go, I don't quite understand what an elder does. 
But in essence, you can sort of think an elder is a person who is a pastor, in, in essence. But an elder is someone in our modern sense who is not the head over the entire group, but in essence sort of should be shepherding a portion of the congregation. We don't have a bishop, so in essence we at Victory Life have to work symbiotically. We have to work together in order to do what Christ would have us do. So biblically, according to Peter, what is an elder supposed to do? What is a leader in the church supposed to do? Now I'm going to talk to you today a little bit further about biblical eldership, but I want you to apply these points to you. As I mentioned in the open, you lead somewhere. You may lead in the church in another role. You may lead in your neighborhood or in your workplace or in your home. Wherever you lead, these concepts apply because remember, Peter has given us this overarching context of sacrificial servant leadership being the leadership that God requires of a Christian leader. But now we get to the nuts and bolts of that. First in verse 2, they must tend the flock. Elders or church leaders must tend the flock. Now, we don't live in an agrarian society. Has anybody here ever been a shepherd? I'd love to see it. Anybody? I see one hand. All right, we'll talk about that later. So anyhow, we, we've got one shepherd in this whole group. But in essence, when, when we think being a shepherd, we simply think care and protection and looking after those that are in their charge. Elders must give people of the church their care, their protection, and their attention. Now, I want to tell you, if this role is just reduced to one person, in a church of 250, no one would really feel cared for or attended to. I have three children, all under the age of five. I have trouble with three of them making sure that each one of them feels cared for, attended to, and protected just in my own household. Now, I could come into this place and say, well, you elected me as pastor, and I'm going to take care of all of you. That is stupid. There are 250 of you. How, how am I in, in any way, shape, and form, with, as one person, supposed to always make sure that you're cared for, protected, led, looked after? That's silly. That's, that's a ridiculous model. And I want to tell you, that's the model that a lot of churches have. They don't have elders the way we have elders. And in essence, two things happen. The church stays incredibly small and sickly because everybody's going, the pastor really doesn't care about us. And the pastor eventually burns out and goes and works at Taco Bell. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the model that so many churches have. That's not our model here. It's not the way we see it scripturally, and it's not the way we've written it in our Constitution. In essence, we have multiple elders, and our Constitution here at the church says that we always have to have at least five, so that all of us, the elder as pastor plus the elders who are lay people, would make sure that the people of the congregation feel loved, cared for, protected, assured, and led. In the time when care and protection and attention is needed, you don't just want your pastor, you want your church. You want the entire body led by the elders of the church, of which our pastor here is one. We have this group of men here at this church right now, and it's beautiful because their desire is to tend the flock, and they do a wonderful job. They visit you when you're sick. They encourage your walk with the Lord. 
They might even have to tell you when you're going astray and let you know that you need to get back on track. But this is the role of elders. Elders are pastors. Elders are lay pastors. Elders are shepherds. Elders are ones who are to tend the flock, to lead. We don't have one here. We have six, including the pastor, who are looking after the flock. My goal is, is that in the coming years that we're here together, that you wouldn't say, always have to think about uh, care in the church as my pastor cares about me. I do care about you as much as I can care about you. More importantly, I, I believe we need to create, and we already have a church. We don't need to create. We need to sustain a church that says, my church cares about me. And my church is led by wonderful men of God called elders. That's the right model. That's the right model. Not some personality cult where everybody just listens to the pastor and has to connect with the pastor in a way that, that oh, uh, the sermon was great and that pastor preaches to me and blah, 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 blah. That's, that's not the model. The model is that God wants us to be in a place where the entire church works together in this beautiful symbiotic relationship. More on that in verse 5. Let's go to the heart of the elder. Where should the heart of the church leader be? And once again, put this in your own context. Where should the heart of the worker at such and such company be? Where should the heart of the father and mother in the household be? Where should the heart of the missions committee member or the tech person or the, or the trustee board member be? Where should the heart be of the Christian leader? Peter gives us some wonderful concepts. First, he gives us these juxtapositions. We should be serving willingly, not under compulsion. We should be serving because we want to. We should be serving in the areas that we serve because we think that, wow, we're doing something for God. We are creating an atmosphere by which the end game is achieved. We're creating a place by which the end game is achieved. And the end game is that souls would come to know Jesus Christ. And on the day when the glory of God is revealed, they would know Jesus. And they would begin to enter into his glory. And so the ministries of the church and the idea that we want to have a church that loves and cares for and protects one another is that we're working towards the end game. That's what should make us do the things that we do willingly. That's what should make us do things that are not under compulsion, that every ministry that we have would be considered something that works towards the end game. I was talking this week with uh, a, a couple of different people who have overseen the scholarship committee here at the church. And the scholarship that we have here at the church helps to pay the way for aspiring pastors and missionaries to get through college so that they can get their degree and then go into full-time ministry. Now you think, oh, that's a really nice endowment that the church has. No, it is a nice endowment, but that's not the point. The point is, at the end of the track of thinking about that scholarship, is that day when the glory of God is revealed. Because we as a church believe that there needs to be people who go into full-time ministry. And that we should be able to help those people who go into full-time ministry because they will lead the charge in places throughout the United States and throughout the world to help win people to the cause of Christ, to help bring salvation to people who do not know Jesus. And at the end of the day that the glory of God is revealed, we will have been found doing what we're supposed to be doing. We should be able to take every single ministry of the church and back it up to Jesus in his coming. Everything that we do. And you might come to me after the service and say, I've got a ministry, Pastor Matt, that I believe does not back up to all the way to Jesus. 
And I'll say, all right, let's go down the track and we'll see. And I'm telling you, if we find one that doesn't, we'll sit down as elders and go, it's time to cut it out. Because it all should back up. It all should go back to the end game. And the end game is there will be a day when Christ returns to this earth and we want as many people to know Jesus as possible. That's why we lead. That's why we serve. Then that's why we do so willingly, not under compulsion. And you might say, I, 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 I've done some menial tasks over at the church throughout the years. Really think about that menial task and think about the reason you did it and why you did it. And in, is there a, a, a way to back it up and say, you know what, in essence, I did it for the glory of God. I did it for the day when Christ is revealed. Nobody might ever have seen my contribution, but I know what my contribution was, and it's part of a greater thing here that we're trying to do as a church to win people to Jesus. That strikes out the negativity. Please do not serve here in a negative spirit. Don't come here and go, oh, I can't believe we're here again to do this again today. That's not biblical leadership. You know, when Jesus got burned out, he went and he prayed, and he asked God to fill him up. He would, he, would, he would get away from the crowds. He'd go out on a hill or out on a boat, and he'd pray. Because it can get tiring. And the task can seem menial. But at the end of the day, they should be able to back themselves up to the day when the glory of God is revealed. Willingly, not under compulsion. Second, eagerly, not for your own gain. Embrace the joy of serving others. Not so that they can think you're awesome. Not so they can be in your debt. Not so they can go, oh, what a great leader. I love that guy. Not at all. But to do so as Christ would have you do it. Lovingly. Not for gain. Now, in this particular context, I would imagine that there were probably some elders that were receiving financial compensation from the house churches that they led. It just makes sense especially if they got to be an especially large house church and that pastor maybe couldn't be bivocational anymore or it necessitated that he be bivocational he couldn't put the time into the job that he used to do. So it makes a lot of sense that there's a, there's a financial gain implication of this, but when we think about leadership, it's not just financial because so many times people lead because they like the feeling of leading. They like the feeling of power. They like for people to think that they were wise or made good decisions they like the respect that they get. They like the title that's bestowed upon them. But that's not biblical leadership. Not for gain, but eagerly. For the joy of serving. Keeping in mind that you do it against the day that Christ returns. And then the other thing that he says here is as examples, not lords. And this is where purity of heart comes in. Sometimes you have to model some pretty tough stuff when you're a leader. Sometimes it's not fun to be a leader. You gotta do things that nobody else will do. The other side of that is the leader who leads and wants to lead so they can tell people what to do. I have the title. I have the, I have the tenure. I have the long-standing relationship here. Therefore, you must follow me. And that's not the model of Jesus at all. The model of Jesus is simple. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Does that mean as a leader that people will never question your motives? <laughs> of course they'll question your motives. Does that mean as a leader people won't question your methods? <laughs> of 
Of course they'll question your methods. Will there be times as the leader you have to say, I'm the leader and we're doing this because I'm the leader. I'm sorry, I think it's the best way to go. I'm sorry if you don't. Yes. Will there be times that you make decisions that people go, that is stupid. Yes. That happens. Where's your heart, though? Is your heart in a place, wherever you lead, that you're leading for the greater glory of God and there's a purity there and you're not leading so that you can make decisions and tell people what to do and feel like you have a voice in the most important of decisions. But to lead because you love Jesus and you want to see people come to know him, there's a humility that comes with that. And that's the final thing here. It's all about humility. It's all about humility. It's not about the power or the title. It's not about being called an elder or a pastor or a trustee or a board chair or a board member or a worship team member or this or that or anything else. It's about humility. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherds appear, uh, when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. And then it talks to all of us in the same way you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. And here's the key. And all of you, all of you, all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's how a church like ours can work, only if we operate in humility with one another. We don't have a bishop that if things get out of whack, he comes in and just says, this is what you're doing, and this is what I'm saying, and this is what's going to happen. In essence, we all need to submit ourselves under the head shepherd and say, God, we, my way does not have to be the way. Your way has to be the way. I'm not going to be a my way or the highway leader. I'm not going to be someone who's, who's defensive or angry about my particular ministry. I'm not going to be someone who uses my title to make decisions irrespective of what other people think. I'm going to be somebody who humbly submits myself to God, and therefore I'm one who humbly submits myself to my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who we have to be to thrive. Voluntarily put yourself under the leadership of your elders. And I want to tell you, I'm a young guy. I haven't seen a ton. And I know I have a lot of decisions that I get to make because of the position that I've been put in here. But I want you to know, and this is my commitment to you, I won't turn to the right or to the left unless I've consulted the Lord and unless I've consulted the elders of this church. Because I have to humbly submit myself the same way we all have to humbly submit ourselves. I won't do that. I don't think I'm that smart. I don't think I'm that clever. The Lord has to lead us. And that comes in consensus among the leadership of the church. Amen? Amen. 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 Second, the leadership must stay humble too. And for leaders to maintain the respect of the people, and this is where old Gene missed it in the movie, you need to communicate decisions ahead of time. You need to give valid reasons for why we do things. And the leadership needs to keep each other accountable for their relationship to Christ. And I hope that that's the kind of community that we can continue to foster here, where we communicate things to you ahead of time, where we give valid reasons why we do things, and we keep each other accountable to the lead shepherd. Because that's who we have to do. That's what we, who we have to be. That's what we have to do. And beyond anything today, we do this for Jesus. We do this for the Lord. In him we have found life and hope and peace and joy and love and purpose and meaning. In Jesus Christ we have found all that we need. 
And we need to submit ourselves to him first in order that any place that we lead or any leaders that we put ourselves under, we can say, God, we do this for you because there will be a day when you appear, when the chief shepherd appears and the glory of the Lord is revealed and all things are made new. And I want as many people to be ready for that day as possible in Jesus' name. That's who we want to be. So today we're going to end our service in a time of prayer. And I promised you that it would be different but not weird. Well, I guess that's dependent on how well you listen and how well we communicate this. But I thought today it'd be neat to do something a little bit different. Because we do have five elders, six if you include the pastor, who lead the church in spiritual matters. And all of our boards are spiritual. Our financial people are some of the most spiritual people I know. But our elders are tasked with leading this church and overseeing this church and tending the flock. And we have prayer times all the time where they anoint you with oil and they pray for you. But today I thought it'd be neat to invite the five lay elders, or lay pastors, if you will, of the church here today, and have you pray over them. And have you commission them with your prayers. And so today I'm going to ask that Randy and Dave and Dale and Travis and Tim would come. And uh, I'm going to invite you in just a second as they get across the front and leave some space to come and pray for them. Come and lay hands on them. Come and say, as a church, we are investing this group with our care, our protection, our leadership, our oversight. We're voluntarily submitting ourselves to those who have been set apart for service. So guys, if you'll just stand right here and give a little bit of space. And I'm going to ask those of you who feel led, and not all of you need to come, but those who would feel led, would you come and lay hands on these men? And would you come and pray for them? And once you're all assembled, we'll pray together.